that our call is to help each other out, to support one another, to, to strengthen each other in their times of weaknesses. And I appreciate help as much as the next person. But sometimes help is dripping with sarcasm. Sometimes help is masked as um, just meanness. <laughs> and I share that with you because last week when I uh, introduced uh, Carrie to you, our new sound guy, I, um, I, I've, I've, I've admitted I've struggled getting his name right. I don't know why I've called him Kelly, and, and I've called him everything but Carrie. I've had, I don't know why I've done that, but I've done that. And I confessed. I was, I was transparent. I was honest. I, I laid my weakness before you. And you have pounced on that. I don't know who's pounced on it. But somebody created a sign. I don't know if you saw it when you came in, but back on our sound booth right there is a big sign that says, the name is Carrie. <laughs> Carrie didn't do that. Somebody did. I don't know who, but I will find out. <laughs> and I will get you. I don't know how, but I will. But actually, it's very funny. I saw that and I laughed. And I appreciate that because I like, as you know, I like to laugh. And, you know, we got to kind of poke fun at ourselves a little bit. And like I said, I don't know why of all the names I have a problem with that one, but I just, I do. So I'm going to work real hard to, to not call him anything but Carrie uh -huh, from here on out. But I appreciate the reminder and those of you that want to help me <laughs> as my memory goes in my old age here. This morning, um, we, we turn to our scripture, which is found in Romans um, chapter 5. What does it say up there? It says Romans 8. I'm making sure I didn't pick the wrong scripture. I'm just double checking. <laughs> this is what I'm preaching on. Yeah, this is, okay, we're Romans 8. Let me see, wait a minute, what? Therefore, since we, okay, he got the scripture right. That's John did that. John's out of town this week. Um, no, you don't, and so I can talk about him because he's not here. So John, he got the right scripture. He got the wrong text. His uh, mother retired this weekend, so he went up to, um, to be with her, uh, and so he and Jenny are out of town, so he's not here this morning, so I can talk about the fact that he messed that up, and he won't know about it. Um, but anyway, so we're in Romans chapter 5, uh, beginning at verse 1, just the first five verses there this morning. So let's read again, Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, pour into us, into our hearts, your hope and strength, character. We pray that you would speak to us now in these moments by your word and by these words, and that we would be truly who you have called and created us to be. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Rodney Dangerfield. Never started a sermon like that. Rodney Dangerfield. What was Rodney Dangerfield's mantra? No respect. That's kind of how I felt when I saw the sign this morning. The story of my life, I get no respect. Well, that, that's, what, that's what his mantra was. That's, that was his re, reoccurring catchphrase, if you will, of his, of his comedy. And what he would do is he would start and end with that statement. He would just repeat it, actually, over and over. I get no respect. And he would say that at the end, I get no respect. But in the middle, he would tell a story, give an antidote. He would do something to give meaning to this fact that he got no respect. He would tell you something that would substantiate this clause, I get no respect. Things like, I get no respect. My father carries the picture of the child in his wallet that came with the wallet. You know, that was a, a get no respect. I get no respect. I was so ugly as a baby that my mother fed me with a slingshot. You know, Th- those kind of stories that, that he would tell. And, and what he would do is, is to try to give um, credibility, tongue-in-cheek, and, and, you know, certainly in the vein of comedy, to the fact that I get no respect. But he had this um, kind of a, a circular rhetoric, a, a circular presentation, if you will, because he started and he ended with the same point. But the idea was that by the time you heard it the second time or third time or fourth time or whatever, you understood it more. Now, if you can kind of stretch that understanding into, from, from comedy and things that are not meant to be taken seriously to something that is meant to be taken extremely seriously, you get a little insight into what Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 5. He's using the very, very same technique for very, very different purposes, not to necessarily entertain, not to tell a joke or just to make you laugh, but he uses that same um, kind of circular presentation. And what I mean is he begins... And he ends with the same declaration. But by the time we hear it the second time, Paul wants us to understand far deeper what it means. Paul wants us to understand in far more powerful terms what what he's trying to, to teach and convey and what we need to understand of what it means to be people of faith and people of Jesus. And so Paul begins this chapter or this part of his letter in Romans chapter 5, and he begins with a statement that is the the foundation of our faith, which is basically this. We are saved by grace. We are saved by grace. He says, therefore, very first verse, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. Paul is reiterating a point that is frequent in his letters, frequent in his teachings, frequent in his preachings, and that is that our salvation is God's free gift. He would say in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace we have been saved through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, lest no one can boast. Paraphrase what he's saying is God gives it to you, don't get cocky. You know, don't get cocky about where you are in the continuum of faith, where you are in your walk with Jesus, where you are in your, your level of self-perceived holiness. Because Paul wants, us to remind, he wants to remind us over and over again, you don't deserve what God has given you. I don't deserve what God has given you. God gives it in His love. You don't earn it. 
So the very foundation of our faith begins with God's free grace. God's, that definition, God's riches at Christ's expense. That, that, that understanding that we don't get what we deserve. We are saved by faith through God's grace. And again, that was the, the foundation that would become part of the, the Protestant Reformation, of which we're all the offspring of. You know, the idea, stop, you know, let's return to the, the foundation. Let's stop trying to kid ourselves into thinking that we can earn our salvation because God's already given it. Now, that's not to say that we don't then respond in what we do, like we talked about this morning. That's not to say that we don't respond with acts of compassion and love, but it's not because by doing that we earn God's love. We do that because we've received God's love. And so we, we share that love out of the gratitude and the shaping of our hearts. So he begins with grace through faith. And what he says is that produces something. That moment of grace produces something. He says then, beginning at the end of verse 2, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. We are saved through faith. We are saved by God's free gift. So we have the opportunity to boast, which is an interesting term he uses, to boast in the hope that we have through um, or hope we have in the glory of God. We boast in the hope. And so what does that mean? The hope that we have in the glory of God. Well, most often what we attribute that to, what I attribute that to, and, and what in the church we attribute that to, is that we recognize that we have a hope that is, we get to be full participants in God's glory in Christ. That we have a hope of, of life and salvation and eternity. And so we, we kind of project that hope into this thing that will one day be received in full. That one day we will experience in fullness through God's grace, through God's gift, the glory of God. That we will receive it in, in, in totality. And that is absolutely true. That is an absolute part of our faith. That is an absolute foundation of what we believe. Every time we gather in this place or in the historic chapel or any place where we may gather to celebrate the life of a brother or sister who has gone, who has passed away in Christ, we celebrate that. We celebrate that reception of the full glory of God. And so that is absolutely a part of it. But, but I think it's too narrow a part. I think Paul says, and, and is going to show us, that, that when we relegate our faith, when we kind of restrict it to that understanding, we, we've, we're seen too narrowly. And so he begins with hope, but he wants to give us a broader understanding of what that, what that hope means. And so he doesn't stop there. So this is where Paul, this is Paul's tactic, this is part of his rhetoric, this is part of his teaching, and... Um, part that we often don't like, I often don't like. There's just so many times I just wish he'd stop. Just wish he'd quit. It would have been a great place to end this. We, we boast in the hope that we have of the glory of God. Yes, saved by faith, God's free gift. We boast in the glory that one day we receive in full, period, end of statement, end of paragraph. Let's move on to something else. Paul doesn't do that. He's, the kind of, he's just never quite content to leave it alone, much to our blessing. And so he goes a little further, and he begins to immediately move into the area of faith that many of us, if we're honest, we get lost in. That, that just is, a, we, we say it, we hear it, we may even rationalize it, but it is, it is the part of faith that becomes very, very hard to embody and live. And this is what he says, verse 3. Not only so, and saying so, not only do we boast in the hope of the glory of God, but we also glory 
in our sufferings. We also glory in our sufferings. Just let that statement sink in for a moment. I'll tell you, in almost 20 years of ministry now, I have never had anyone come up to me and go, Chris, you know what? Man, life is just awful right now. My job is falling apart. My marriage is in shambles. My kids are making horrible choices in life. The doctor just called me with terrible news. Everything is going wrong, and I can't tell you, Chris, I just give all glory to God. Praise Jesus. (laughs) Never had that conversation. And I've never shared those words. I've I've never said it to anyone else. Because that's counterintuitive. We don't think that way. What do we think about blessings? When we hear somebody say, I'm blessed, we think things are going well. Isn't that what blessings mean? Things are going well. Life is good. Marriage is good. Family is good. Job is good. Health is good. Whatever. I'm blessed. If you say that to me, if you walk by me on any day and say, man, I'm feeling blessed today, I'm going to infer that what you're telling me is life is good right now. And that is blessed. And there's nothing wrong with that. Please don't, don't hear criticism. But, but how many of us live into what Paul says? That we will boast, we will count our sufferings as blessings. We don't. We don't because that's not the nature. So, so when we hear something like that, we ought to immediately stop. We ought to pause because Paul's saying something that is intentionally got a little bit of a shock value there. And what happens is we've heard these words a lot. If you've grown up in the church, if you've, if you've listened to, to sermons enough in your life, and you've heard preachers, you've heard me talk about this, so we, we kind of move quickly past this because we've heard it before. But, but let's stop for a moment. We boast in our sufferings. And if we stop there, the logical question is why? Why would we do that? Why would we do that? Does that mean that, that our nature should be that we want bad things or terrible things or hard times or or calamity or challenges or difficulties? Do we want those things to happen? No. No, I don't think that's what Paul's saying at all. But he's saying that we see purpose in it. Why can we begin to boast? Because we see God's working. And so he begins to flush out what God does, why we can say that we boast in our sufferings. And this is what he says. First thing off, let's trace his line of thought. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. We boast in our sufferings because, and and so stop with because, Paul's going to say, this is why, because he knows this is crazy. Now Paul would say it again, um, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he goes in his own life and he talks about all the things, all the hardships and difficulties that he boasts in. So here's going to give us the foundation of why. He says because suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance. Some of your scriptures may say endurance. I, I kind of like that imagery a little bit more because I can relate to it a little bit. Anybody who is, who's been athletic in your life, you can understand suffering producing endurance. I, I've, I think I've told this story before, but um, I had a friend in high school, middle school in high school, by the name of uh, Richard Vasilla. Richard lived down the street from me. We ended up going to rival high schools, uh, but, we were, but we were friends. And um, the summer before my junior year of high school, Richard found me one day and said, hey, um, Richard was a soccer player. I was a football and baseball player. He was a soccer player and a runner, cross-country runner. And he said, hey, I'm going to be getting ready for the the cross-country season. Let's run together this summer. 
let's, let's go out. I got this, you know, three, four mile kind of um, course that I run on the back roads. He's like, let's do it together. So I'm like, okay, let's do it. And I can tell you, I learned in that summer to loathe Richard. Okay? Ron Richard was a good runner. It was never something running. Running for the sake of running, I still don't quite understand it, you know? But, but he did. And, and so, you know, repeatedly during the summer, and I'd know he's coming, he would come, and then I would hear that knock on the door, you know, that kind of knock. You just, I knew he was coming, and I'd be kind of like, well, maybe he'll forget today. Maybe he'll forget today. And he never forgot. And it was, and again, it was Florida. It was hot. It was miserable. I mean, it just, to me, it was suffering. It was absolute suffering. And all summer long, two or two times a week, we'd make that run. I'll tell you what. Come the start of football season, my junior year, I was in the best shape of my life. I was in the absolute best shape of my life. I mean, endurance-wise, we had taken endurance testing at the end of the, the school year, my sophomore year, and then they compared our times and our endurance and our distances at the beginning of our junior year. And I made the highest gains of anybody on the team. Why? Because suffering produces endurance. <laughs> you know, I mean, what? because he got me out there every day and we did it. And it's true physically. And, you know, people who lift weights, you know this. If the, 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 the core of, of muscle building is that you tear the muscle down. Lifting weights is tearing muscles down so that your body builds them back up stronger to endure, to persevere, to strengthen. So there's a number of ways we can understand that. But what's true physically is true spiritually. Paul says that, that suffering produces endurance, perseverance, strength, whatever word you want to use there. It begins to build a resolve within us. So why do we boast? Because he's saying God's doing something here. And so suffering produces endurance. And then the very next thing, endurance or perseverance produces character. Endurance produces character. Who does not want to be described as a person of great character? Anybody here not want to be somebody who's thought of as a man or woman of character? Of course we don't. We want to be people of character. The problem is we don't often want the process that comes with building character. And I don't either. It's the great paradox of parenting. We, as parents or grandparents, there's nothing that breaks our heart worse than when our children are hurting. There's nothing, I mean, I can remember when, when Ryan was, was little and um, one of his first experiences of kind of being kind of picked on by a larger group and I saw it in the distance and it just, it just broke my heart and it made me angry and you know, and I wanted to go push down seven-year-olds, you know, I mean, it does, it, it does things to you. You don't want to see your kids go through that. You don't want to see them struggle. You don't want to see them hurt. You don't want to see them disappointed or or um, brokenhearted. But at the same time, the paradox is this. If we're honest, we don't want life to come too easy to them. We don't. I mean, they need those experiences. We needed those experiences. As painful as they are, you need to experience disappointment from time to time. You need to not always win. Lord, have mercy in this generation. Can we teach kids that you do sometimes lose? It's okay. It's okay, because life is going to teach them that. You know, sometimes you need to lose. Sometimes you need to not get what you want. Sometimes you need to face the adversity and the failure and sometimes even the heartbreak and the hurt because it produces character. It produces in them as it produces, we pray in us, 
people of empathy and compassion, people of resolve, people of hard work. That's what we want. So we're stuck in this place. We don't want them to hurt. But if we want them to be people of character, they need to experience and endure those things. So do we. So do we. The, the rewards of our labor, the rewards of our labor, the rewards of our endurance, the rewards of our perseverance is not what we achieve by them, but what we become through them. Not what we achieve by them, but who we become through them. And that's what Paul recognizes. Tom Landry, the late great coach of, of God's team, the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> he, he once said to a gathering of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, he said, my job is to mold the mind of my players, to get them to do what they don't want to do so they can achieve what they want to achieve. To do what they don't want to do so they can achieve what they want to achieve, to endure, to persevere, to become people of character. That's what Paul says, that we can boast in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and we are called to be men and women of character. And then he brings it back full circle. He brings it exactly to the place where he began. Verse 5, produce perseverance, character. Uh, let me go back actually a little bit. Suffering produces perseverance, per perseverance, character, and character, hope. That's exactly what he started with. He said, by being justified by grace through faith, we have hope. And we boast in our sufferings, and our sufferings produces endurance, and our endurance produces character. And oh, by the way, that produces hope. So now we're right back where we began, except we are not as we began. It's now different. Paul's given us a broader understanding of hope because if we, just ex if we just take at surface value what hope looks like at the moment of our salvation, it looks like the promise that we know God has provided for our future. And it is that God has our eternity prepared for, that Jesus has died for our life now and forever. But what hope is what Paul wants us to understand is it's not just trusting in God for our future, but recognizing God's power at work in our present. God's power at work in our present, that in our moments and in our struggles and in our difficulties and the challenges of life that we will inevitably face, that God isn't just waiting for a distant day in which he is going to be at work within us in fullness and, and revealing his glory. But he's there here and now. And the truth is sometimes we don't see that except through our rearview mirrors. I mean, the truth is that sometimes we just don't see it in the moment. But it doesn't negate the promise. Our hope is not just in what will be, but what is. That God works for good in all things to him who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what he says in a few chapters after this one that God is working the here and now. And as we grow and develop and our character builds, we find God more able to meet us in our places of suffering and struggle. And so we don't rejoice because we endure those things. We rejoice because God's with us in those things and God's at work. And God doesn't give up on us. And so hope comes full circle. One of my favorite series of books as a child and even as an adult and I know I've said this before, but was, is C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I read them over and over. I did a senior thesis on them. Um, I, I love those books. And in the second book, 
of the series, Prince Caspian. If, if, you, if you're not familiar with the series, um, Aslan's the Lion. And he is the Jesus figure in the entire book series. And a couple of the children from the first book return to this magical land of Narnia. And one of those children is Lucy. And Lucy comes back, and through much of the, the book, um, she has, does not see Aslan, but finally they are reunited. And as they're reunited and she embraces Aslan, she looks at him and she said, Aslan, you're bigger now. You're, you're, you're bigger now. And he says, that is because you have grown. That is because you have grown. And as you grow, you will find me bigger. As you grow, you will find me bigger. And that's what the promise of, that's our hope. Not just that as we grow, become men and women of character, we will find Christ bigger as he meets us in those places of challenge and difficulties so that God can work through them. Trust in that, friends. Trust in it. It's the promise of faith. Paul knew suffering and hardship and difficulties probably more so than any of us in this room. But he never lost hope because as he grew, Christ grew bigger. It was true for him. It is true for us. The, the discussion comes full circle, but it does not end as it began. Hope is different. Hope is more. Hope is our promise. Let us embrace it with the hands and with the heart of faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your work in our lives and um, producing in us men and women of character. And sometimes that Character is built in the struggles, in the difficulties, in the moments that we would not choose, but remind us that you're there. You're at work. And the hope that we have in the moment of our faith is the hope that we need never let go of because it is the hope of the glory of God. But that is not just revealed in what will be, but it is here and now. May we embrace it. May we believe it. May we live it. In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, let's stand as we sing our hymn of commitment. My hope is.